fabulous listeners and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Glow West podcast and we are a little space on the internet where we chat about sex, sexuality and the body. I'm your host Dr. Caroline West and as always I'm delighted to be part of the Tortoise Shack Network where you can find tons of content on politics, culture, society, trans rights and of course my favourite topic of sex. If you like what we do, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise It really does help to keep the mics on. Or if you're feeling extra generous as well, you can pop over to Apple and rate and review. And that really does help to get the word out as well. If you want to contact me in, in Twitter and Instagram, it's at Glow West Podcast. So we've just finished Pride Month not that long ago. And we talk a lot about dating and the podcast and obviously everything else that comes with sex but we also talk a lot about consent as well and I think that's really important to look at how LGBT people address consent but particularly true dating apps because let's face it we, we've been locked up for a year most of us you know we're gonna use a lot of dating apps so I have the perfect guest to explore this little niche area with today. So my guest today is Christopher Dietzel who's the pronouns he him. He's a postdoctoral fellow at Dalhousie University in Canada. Chris previously worked as the lead research assistant on a multi-million dollar partnership grant at McGill University. And he's also been awarded a MCTAS Research Fellowship to work as a visiting scholar at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne in Australia. Chris's research explores the intersections of gender, sexuality, safety and technology. Specifically, he researches how LGBTQ plus people navigate and enact consent through their use of dating apps and how they address experiences of sexual violence. Chris, welcome along. Thanks for joining me all the way from Canada. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Fab, fab. Well, a happy post Pride. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) A very different Pride this year. Very different, but it's, you know, after a year of COVID, it's nice to see that the that the celebrations and the activism is continuing. So very happy to see that for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and look, we'll make up for it next year anyway. It'll be an even bigger <laughs> party by then. So, so tell me about your research. It sounds fascinating and a very, very much needed area of research, I suppose, as well, because mm. a lot of us do date online at the moment. But, you know, consent isn't generally talked about sometimes when it comes to dating apps and, and you know, that online technology aspect of things. So how did you get involved, first of all, in, in that area of research? Yeah, so it's actually kind of a funny story. <laughs> so when I first started, uh, so I finished my PhD at McGill University. And when I was starting my PhD, I was just working as a research assistant to study sexual violence. And as we were new on the grant and the grant was getting started, myself and a few other of the RAs, we were trying to figure out our areas of expertise, the things that we wanted to research. And I was particularly interested in looking at queer people's experiences. And so we were doing literature reviews, you know, we were reading like um, uh, media articles and news articles, getting a pulse on what was happening. And I was having a casual conversation one day with two of the these RAs, two of these research assistants. And one of them was just talking about how she was meeting, a, chatting with a guy on a dating app. And that afternoon or that evening, she was looking forward to like go to meet him to have a date. And of course, you know, as like friends, colleagues, we were like, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. And then she said something along the lines of, yeah, the conversations have been going really well. But just last night, prior to meeting up today, he sent me an unsolicited dick pic. And so that kind of got us, because we were already in this frame of right, frame of mind where our research looks at sexual violence, you know, we started to talk about how, particularly in her experience as a straight woman, it was very frustrating that uh, 
on the unsolicited dick pic felt just like a, a step she had to overcome in order to date. And that really got me thinking about my experiences as a gay man and how many times people have shared unsolicited dick pics as well. And of course, then again, with this lens of sexual violence, I started, I became really curious in terms of how people were thinking about unsolicited dick pics, whether people would consider that uh, a form of online sexual violence. And particularly in the experiences of queer individuals, like, where there's different power dynamics, where there's gender differences, sexuality differences, I was really curious as to how that would be different or similar to heterosexual people's experiences, you know, because like if a man sends a woman an unsolicited dick pic, there's a, there's a very evident power dynamic there that comes with history and depression and all of these things. When you have two men doing it, if you have two women, if, you know, if you have people of different uh, gender, gender, uh, gender expressions, gender identities, you know, how do these different identities actually function in to people's experiences? So quite honestly, it was an unsolicited dick pic that really got my research started. <laughs> quite interestingly I, enough. I mean, it's probably yeah. the only good thing that's ever come out of a dick pic, but um, yeah, uh, not an unsolicited one, of course. But yeah. that's fascinating because I think you know like unsolicited dick pics it, it is a feature of sexual violence i mean if you're mm. if, you, if you stood in the street and flashed somebody that we would consider immediately consider that to be sexual violence but because mm -hmm. it's online we've been a little bit slower maybe to name it as sexual violence and i think maybe now we call it cyber flashing and we're kind of understanding sexual violence as a spectrum but mm -hmm. is is it the same for queer communities you know are, is it an immediate naming it as sexual violence or is it, oh, it's just what we do or a, a minimization of it? Yeah, so you're touching on certainly some themes that I found in my research, particularly for gay and queer men. You know, this has come from history, like uh, decades of oppression and like trying to figure out spaces where sexuality would be celebrated and just be where people could be comfortable exploring their sexuality. You know, so like with histories of tea houses and bath houses and like, you know, um, all of these different events where people would find safe, discrete spaces where they could have sex. With the evolution of the Internet, we see that um, first with like chat rooms and, and online dating, but then with uh, dating apps, you know, there was this evolution of space with technology where people would continue to explore their sexuality. And so I think that is a it's a big big factor in terms of people are looking for ways to safely and comfortably uh, explore their sexuality. But then at the same time, you know, how do you do that in a way that's not offensive or hurtful to other people, right? And so I think that's one of the big challenges with dating apps is there hasn't been this, this reckoning, reckon, like social reckoning where we have a conversation about what is what is appropriate or inappropriate in these online spaces with the me too movement that started back in 2017 you know there was this national international reckoning around what is comfortable what is what is permitted uh in sexual relationships and of course what is uh what is violent and you know where consent is concerned uh where there's power dynamics and abuse and and harm happening but but largely the Me Too movement focused on heterosexual interactions. And albeit there were a few individual cases, but you know, the LGBTQ plus community was largely absent from that conversation. And so I think that I think in the years that have followed, you know, there has been this societal push for conversations around consent and sexual violence, but particularly in these everyday instances and certainly something that has been normalized, 
like uh, unsolicited dick pics online. I think there's some people are, are don't necessarily see it as an incident of sexual violence where other people are starting to identify it and certainly experience it in that way. Yeah. And yeah. do you think the language is to blame there? Because I think, you know, if, if you look at, say, a pyramid, I suppose, of sexual violence, like rape is, you know, at the top of the pyramid and that's in-person violence conducted on mm -hmm. another person. And then we have a massive spectrum of sexual violence. But I think some people still think violence as in it's penetration or it's somebody touching your body. So therefore, when it comes mm -hmm. to digital violence on the screen, well, no one's been touched and it's not inverted commas, massive bunny ears, as serious as in-person violence. So do you think that's why maybe people are, are more hesitant to name it as sexual violence, even though it still has a like a huge impact on people? And rightly so, you know, there's no um, minimization there from, from me. I'm just trying to explore the no, differences in it. You yes, know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, that's definitely something that I, that I found in my research is that uh, for my participants, there was... Uh, not amongst everyone, of course, but there were certainly individuals that tended to minimize it because they felt that it was not as serious as physical violence, right? And I think that's part of the problem as well, that when you are when you have these incidents of sexual violence that occur online, is that the impact is, is not necessarily seen, you know, it can be invisible. If you're interacting with a screen, you turn off your screen and then you don't necessarily see the person or you don't necessarily interact with the person, right? But those impacts can still, are still there. You know, it, it can still do a lot of harm to an individual who is on the receiving end on that of that. And not just one action, but if these are continual actions, you know, then that can be internalized and people can can you know deal with that in many different ways over the course of years, right? So um, physical violence is very obvious because we see it, we feel it, it's 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 immediately noticeable, but online sexual violence isn't as evident, even though it's it's prevalent. Yeah, and I, absolutely, I think that's a great way to sum it up. And and because I, th I think a lot of people know this, but maybe sometimes we just don't have the mm. words to really explain this because that conversation isn't out there a, a lot of the time. And like you said mm -hmm. earlier, it's a it's a lot of the time it's focused on straight people. So like, let's talk about your research. You look predominantly at queer people. So how did they approach the issue of consent when dealing with dating apps? Is it radically different to straight people? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, yeah, so in my research, I found that there were three main ways. Uh, so my research, particularly in regards to consent, looked at gay men, gay and queer men's experiences uh, of like their understandings of consent, their practices of consent. And so amongst them, I found that they thought about consent primarily in three ways, um, and three ways online and three ways in person. Uh, so in terms of consent online, there were some people well, I guess four. <laughs> there were some people who didn't even think that consent related to online interactions at all. They just they thought that you know when you can, when you are online, this is a this is a virtual space, and therefore um, consent doesn't apply. So this actually goes back oh, wow. to what you were talking about before, yeah. where there's a distinction between a virtual world and a physical world, where. Um, you know, if, if people think about sex as a physical act, then they might not think about consent for a non-physical act, right? Okay, uh, that's fascinating. And was there yeah. like any other, like were they older people? Were they younger? Was there any kind of other predominant 
demographic that, that really thought no, that way? Not so not from what I found, but I, I want to do a larger quantitative study to really look at differences across identities. Sure. So that's a project that's going to be coming in yeah. years to come. <laughs> but uh, no, I, ha I had participants whose ages ranged from 18 to 62, and it, I didn't find that it was particularly based on age or race. Or uh, I even looked at like factors such as uh, sexual positioning or like years of using the app, you know, just trying to to think about different factors which could account for this. Uh, my, my study was qualitative and therefore smaller. And so I didn't see any immediate connections, but again, that's something that I wanna to continue to explore. But yeah, so in terms of people thinking about uh, non-consent online, another reason that I actually think that some people don't think about consent for an online sexual interaction is because of the nature of dating apps. You know, you can have a conversation and some of it might be sexual, some of it might not be sexual, some of it might be discussing sex, but then the question then becomes like, is it a sexual, is it a sexual interaction or are we just talking about sex? So I think some of these ambiguities, you know, played into why some people don't actually attribute consent to online sexual interactions just because of the nature of online interactions. That's fascinating. Yeah. And that that's something that you don't hear too, too often of yeah the, the gray areas of consent. We often think, oh, it's about drugs <laughs> or alcohol. And it's actually. Yeah maybe bigger than than we think in that in that aspect wow okay well so, so oh sorry no, <laughs> Excuse go for it, me. Go for it. yeah so but that was just one category of how people thought about consent online uh and that was specifically in terms of non-consent in terms of how for participants my participants who thought about consent online some of them uh thought about consent as connecting to an app so they would think that when they log into a dating app, that they were consenting to everything that happened in that space. So specifically, it was like a one-time act of consenting. And when they stopped consenting, they would leave the app or turn off their phone. Okay. So, okay. But yeah. Like the physical way of that is like, <laughs> you know, if you go into a bedroom, that doesn't imply consent, you know, and it's not like. You, you know, it's like, it would, that's totally mm. different than what we would assume. Like if you went to a sex party, just because you walk in the door doesn't mean you're going to have a giant orgy with everybody. <laughs> like that's, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure some people could, but you know, like there's just not, that's very much assumed consent of like, I'm in this space, therefore I'm up for anything. Mm -hmm. Well, and here again, there's a bit of a history to it, because if we go back to like gay men's experiences in bathhouses, uh, you know, there, there has been this culture of, uh, not necessarily speaking about everything that happens. And so there are, there are, you know, you would use gestures or emotions or body language or different things to communicate uh, what you'd be interested or what you are not interested, right? But in, in the online world that collapses. And so you don't necessarily have these the nuances, the subtleties that are present in the same way that we know historically. I mean, you, you can read somebody's tone, you can understand like how quickly they respond to messages, even time of day could be indicative, you know, if you're messaging at 2am versus 2pm, there's, there's implications there, right? Yeah, but yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting, because like you're saying, you know, it's, I think there's this idea, like, there's, there's different ideas of what consent even means, where some people do think about it as a one-time action. Uh, and that makes sense if they're thinking about consent for a one-time action for a space, where other people think about consent in a more continuous way. Okay, that, that's fascinating. And do you think, like, you, I know you said, yeah, you had um, participants from lots of different age groups, but do you think there is, is maybe a split between the ages? Like, you know, hopefully consent education is a little bit more improved for younger people, even though 
there's still a long way to go. And you would make the assumption that older people didn't have as much access to information around consent or that didn't really come up at all in that. It's definitely something that I I want to investigate further. I I hypothesize that there is a difference based on ages uh, and not just because of technology, but like you said, because of how consent discourses have evolved in society recently. I definitely think that, um, you know, older people, older queer people are not necessarily, have not grown up in a world where they were comfortable or able or where it was safe for them to talk about their sexuality in the way that young people are certainly easily and freely and safely communicating and demonstrating their sexuality nowadays. So I, I certainly think that there are differences on gener- depending on age and generations, uh, but on, there hasn't been much research on older people's use of dating apps, unfortunately. Much of the literature focuses on young people's use. So that's another project that I want to do in the future is to do like a cross-generational study to examine exactly that kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've looked into that as well um, via a, a straight angle. And yeah, it's still assumed that nobody over the age of 35 uses a dating app. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's very much not real life. So yeah, we need to update that. So so for the people in the city then who might have said, OK, this actually is sexual violence and, and they, they named it as that. What happens to those people? Where do they go with that kind of information? Do they log off or do they kind of minimize it because it's not in person? Like, what do they do with that knowledge? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely found that a few of my participants had minimized uh, experiences of sexual violence. And it was interesting because more than like there were actually a few or several who talked about um, quote unquote bad sex. And so they talked about it as a bad sexual experience rather than framing it as an incident of sexual violence. And so here again, I think I think this reflects uh, these societal discourses and the difference between like queer identities and straight identities, because uh, I think straight people, particularly straight women have, have been encouraged to think about this, think about and identify sexual violence in a very specific way where queer people haven't uh, largely engaged in those types of conversations. And so I think that, yes, it, it does reflect uh, like this history of queer identities where people don't necessarily identify it as sexual violence. They think about it as bad sex or something unfortunate or, you know, like fill in the blank. I, I, I definitely think, I definitely saw a minimization of people's experiences in that regard. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. And then is there like, you know, do they create support services to support themselves? Like some people, you know, Me Too has, has kind of highlighted how people use things like whisper networks. So, oh, don't go mm-hmm. near them. They're either like you said bad sex or else they're well it would be hard to see that they would use like they call somebody a rapist if if they're just talking about online stuff but obviously that's a bigger conversation but do they engage in things like that of like protective measures or anything like that yeah so participants uh both in that study and then i did another study look at trans and gender diverse people's experiences and across these different studies there were there were certainly strategies that individuals used or learned because they would look online or talk to friends so yeah, there were there were many different things that people would use to to kind of filter out problematic individuals. So one in particular was that um, a few of the trans and gender diverse folks had talked about how they would use uh, social media as as a means to see if somebody like first and foremost if if there were grainy pictures, if the person didn't have a photo, they would look at the text. You know, all of this kind of generic things to assess someone's profile. But uh, there were a few folks who had talked about using like Google searches um, 
And the information that somebody like another dating app user would provide, they would use a Google search or they would try to find that person's uh, Instagram account, Facebook page, you know, like try to find Twitter, uh, TikTok, you know, they would look, look for different profiles to see if they could, if you will, triangulate who this individual was and, and determine if they were actually who they said they were. Um, to be clear, this was not like a, it was not a stalking activity. It was more so a verification yeah. process that an individual would use. Um, and it wasn't just with social media. There were actually a few participants who talked about using uh, even Spotify as, as a means to identify an individual, not identify, but to, to assess an individual. Uh, because with some of these apps, you can link not only your social media accounts, but accounts like Spotify. And for trans and gender diverse folks, they they saw any type of verification process helpful in knowing that this person um, might be more closely aligned with who they say they are. Yeah. Well, it's also a protection thing as well, isn't it? That like, you know, mm -hmm. if you are queer or trans that you, you do face the added risk of violence and, you know, mm -hmm. somebody might not be who they say they are and you might be walking into um, a situation where there's people they're ready to assault you just because you happen to be queer so it's like that's like a lot of extra labor to have to do that i think it is people take for granted sometimes so yeah there's two points there that you hinted at that i want to follow up with is first and foremost those were just uh, online strategies but there's also in-person strategies that people uh have enacted one is like uh some trans folks talked about specifically going to a place and staying in that place so you don't move uh, because you can then tell your friends you're going to go here and that you're going to be here for a certain amount of time. You could also check in with, you know, the bartender if you're at a bar. You could check in with the barista if you're at a cafe so that uh, you could even create your own support systems when you're in these spaces. Um, you know, there's other things that might be more familiar to folks. Like you could call, uh, you could arrange for somebody to call you at a certain time to check in. Those are certainly strategies as well. Um, but really, like... Uh, not relying on the individual to to help you with transportation, you know, being in charge of your own transportation. Uh, you know, there's many different strategies, but you're right to your point is that this is, it's a lot of labor on the individual to manage their own safety. The other thing is in terms of like how straight people um, safety and navigating safety and consent, those negotiations for straight people. I think it's been really interesting in this past year with COVID because queer people have been, navigating safety forever and now with covid uh straight people have been put into a social situation where they have to navigate their safety and have to navigate how comfortable they are interacting with other people obviously this isn't to say that this is the same as like a sexual situation but that we are seeing nowadays where folks are being uh, much more explicit about what they're comfortable with, what they're uncomfortable with, what they're safe doing, what they're unsafe doing. And so I think, I hope that that COVID has really fueled conversations around consent and around safety uh, that will stay in the culture and be more embedded in the culture, not just for queer people, but for straight people as well. Absolutely, yeah, and like that joy of like, communication and saying here's what I'm comfortable with it's the, the two meter distance or I'm only comfortable with masks or vaccinated people or whatever it was but I suppose then that you know that that leads us to like dating obviously has been online for quite a while but last year it was really really online so yes you, you know it like ramped up in massive gear on that so how do you think you know sex 
sexuality, safety and technology all intersect together? Is it, you know, some people will say it's terrible. It's, you know, don't ever <laughs> go near the yeah. internet. It's so bad, you know, and I'm sure. sure it's obviously a bit more nuanced than that, shall we say? Most definitely. I think there's, uh, it's quite interesting, you know, because people tend to put things in binary categories, gender, sexuality, whatever have you. And I think technology is another example of that. People tend to, to, want to make technology either all good or all bad. And I think there's so much, so much of technology depends on what you do with it. You know, there's affordances that are certainly built into the apps with like reporting and blocking and filters, et cetera. But again, it, it depends on the individual to have, how they use these tools to make technology good or bad. Uh, along those lines, you know, it's not that technology is always good for one individual or always bad for one individual. You know, people can of course have their own experiences with good and bad technology. And particularly where queer people are concerned in terms of consent and sexual violence. Here again, I think this is interesting because where men and women are kind of fixed in this stereotype of men as perpetrators and women as survivors or victims, queer people, there's not necessarily a stereotype of what their identity is with sex, uh, sexual violence. You know, men, uh, going back to the unsolicited dick pics example, queer men can both be a perpetrator of that and be a, um, a victim of that. You know, so there's, there's much more nuance in terms of people's experiences in that regard. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And well, I wonder, because there's a gender aspect there, I wonder, you know, I, I know you mm -hmm. obviously studied gay men, but I wonder about um, queer women and if you had any re research on that aspect of, you know, the unsolicited, whatever gentilia you're working with kind of picture <laughs> um, that yeah. comes in. Was it was it felt the same way, do you think? Yeah, so there's a professor that I uh, have started like developing a project with, and there's been a few others who have kind of asked that exact question, is what does it look for women who have sex with, sex with women? But going back to the example of an unsolicited dick pic, there's such a, uh, there's so many cultural meanings that are embedded in that, that come with a patriarchal culture of men being in power, that for women, you know, there's there's not necessarily an equivalent of that. And even if even if when women send like unsolicited pictures of genitalia or, or breasts or something, you know, there's there's not that that history of male oppression that comes with it. Um, so I glad you're asking that because of course that's another project I want to do. So many things to research. You'll in never area. be finished. Um, You'll never good be thing finished. As well. <laughs> that's fascinating. But, yeah. Yeah, no, it's 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 interesting as well because um, for women who have sex with women, uh, for like lesbians, research has shown that uh, the rates of sexual violence against lesbians is not as high as it is for bisexual women. And so I think here again we have to be aware of the nuances, these like false binaries, where uh, bisexual women can experience violence from from many more individuals in their sexual relationships uh, because they're interested in men and because they're interested in women. Uh, so. Yeah, research has consistently shown that bisexual women experience higher rates of sexual violence than lesbian women. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So definitely more more research on that to to really kind of follow up on that aspect. And, and mm -hmm. going back to the men in your in your study, there, do you think that were there some of them that got the unsolicited dick pic and then like felt uncomfortable about it? They didn't see it as a positive thing, but then they still went and met that person what were what was that experience like was it positive or 
or negative overall or a bit of everything? Yes, <laughs> definitely a bit of everything. So I found that there were several different factors that influenced how people reacted to unsolicited dick pics. So as I alluded to before, like time of day could certainly be one, the amount of years somebody has been using an app you know if they're young and new to the app this is this feels very foreign and intense versus somebody who's been on the app for years who's normalized this in their experience um i also found that like you know if somebody is using uh alcohol or drugs, if they're under the influence, they might be more receptive or they might be more willing to send a photo. Uh, there were other aspects well that like, there's different factors that could impact how somebody not only reacts to it, but their willingness to send it to someone else. And so um, what I particularly found interesting with that too, is that some people uh, recognized it as problematic, but then still went along with it. And so, if they're looking for sex, if they're looking for a quick hookup, you know, they might be willing to set aside their own uh, knowledge and experience of this as something problematic, not necessarily even sexually violent, but just something is problematic, but we'll still put up with that because their end goal, they use the app as, as the vehicle to get to that end goal of having a sexual experience. And so to go back to the question that we started with at the beginning, you know, so I still think that people see unsolicited dick pics and sexual violence online as a step that they have to overcome to, to get what they want. So in that sense, then, is it kind of something that's accepted as normal? And it's just, oh, it's par for the course. If you're online, this is an, a normal part of it. I definitely think that it's been internalized in, in the broad culture of dating apps uh, as something that is expected and common. I think there's individuals that are really pushing against this idea of unsolicited dick pics and sexual violence as normal. Uh, but part of the problem with that is, as you had mentioned before, so much of this relies on the individual to be responsible for that, right? Unless the app puts in like a filtering system where, you know, they, they, don't allow people to send pictures at the first uh, when you first connect or like Tinder, which is blocked photos entirely. You know, there's it's on the individual to report or block or stop interacting. There's no uh, there's sometimes a lack of like mechanisms within the apps to 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 regulate that. Um, to be clear, it's it, 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 it again comes back to this idea of is it only good or only bad? I don't think that by like tinder's approach to block uh photos entirely like that got rid of the idea of it got rid of the ability to send unsolicited dick pics in the app but people can still be harassing you can still say mean things you can still stalk somebody you know it, it doesn't get rid of this problem of violence and harm it just means that one of the mechanisms that people engage in harm is no longer there yeah and maybe part of that is like it can be a warning system sometimes, as, as awful as that sounds. It's like, you know, if that's not the kind of person you want and they're showing their true colors like that, you're just like, okay, that's grand. I can block that person and not waste any more time on them if they're the kind of person that thinks this is okay. But yeah, um, yeah there's it's a big conversation, isn't it, to kind of think about that aspect. But I know, I know you said as well that there were many different types of uh, consent that, that you found that people were engaging in. But did they really talk about it on the apps or did they leave consent to when they were in person or did they set up and say, here's my boundaries or whatever online? 
so it's a fantastic question and it was something that I was very curious about as well and so I think that uh, what I found in my research is that the apps certainly facilitated negotiations of consent. So it's it's easier for people to have these conversations because there's a sense of anonymity, a sense of comfort. You can just talk about and say what you want. Um, so yeah, my participants really found that the, the the app space made it easier to talk about consent, talk about, you know, would you like to host? Would you not like? What are we interested in doing? When, how, all of this kind of stuff. But what was... For, really interesting was then how they used those initial online negotiations of consent, uh, how they how they applied those online negotiations to their in-person interactions. So I first found that some people thought about consent as a contract where what they discussed online had to happen in person and there was no continuation or discussion of that. Other people thought about the online uh, discussion as like a framework. So they, they used that to guide their in-person interactions, but they were willing to have more of a discussion. It's rather than a contract, they saw it as like, it's just easier to not talk about it. Not that I'm unwilling to talk about it, but it's just easier not to uh, versus the contract where it's like, I show up to your house, this is what happens, we're done. And then the third category was, was where people uh, saw the online interaction as a continuation of, or the in-person interaction is a continuation of the online interaction. So one participant particularly said, you need like a double consent, you know, consent online and consent in person. Um, but here again, with consent in person, folks felt there was a bit of pressure that came with, some folks felt there was a bit of pressure that came with meeting in person because there was an expectation that since you talked about stuff online, you had to follow through, you know? So if somebody shows up at your door for a, a chat or a coffee, or you meet somewhere, you know, even the, the act of meeting, uh, whether or not you, like if you felt uncomfortable or didn't want to be there or whatever, they felt pressured to go through just because they already had put in so much time and effort to get to that point. Um, okay. So some of these participants recognized, recognized that consent was continuous, but had difficulty in actually um, practicing that continuity. That's interesting. Okay. And what do you think that was? Do you think it was because it was so hyped up beforehand that they were just, they felt obligated maybe? I think for, for some participants, there was certainly a sense of obligation for some, it was like, it's easier to go through with something than not, you know, especially if a hookup, you know, you, you hook up for maybe an hour or something and it's easier to maybe go through with that. And, you know, there's also the, the aspect of like, you wanted a hookup, even if the person isn't to what you expected, like they're here, it's easy. Let's just do it. Um, there were certainly participants who talked about like it was, um, yeah, this this sense of obligation and pressure, but also this 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 expectation um, and the kind of a fear of saying no. Uh, so going back to this idea of sexual violence, there were a few participants who talked about um, the if there was like aggressions or something that happened in person, um, some of them felt very uh, capable to say no and stop the interaction, and others felt like again it, it might be easier to just go through. Excuse me, just to go through with it. Yeah. Okay, so that's kind of like in your, in your first scenario there when you're saying, you know, they said, okay, I'm going to show up and give you a blowjob or whatever. But if they got there mm -hmm. and they were like, actually, I'm not really feeling this or oh, I'm not in the mood for a blowjob, I'll give you a hand job, whatever, whatever happens to be. Sure. But so sure. they didn't seem to feel safe in understanding that consent is reversible. That didn't, mm. that doesn't seem to factor into it or else. So do you think it's like the obligation or it's more the fear? or maybe a mix of the two? Yeah, I'd, 
my participants talked about like uh, they didn't necessarily emphasize fear so much. That was more so what I had understood. Um, and there were a couple who had talked about experiencing like who specifically said sexual violence. Like there was one participant who had been raped uh, and talked about that. Um, but I, I really think that, you know, there's there's these like layers of all of these experiences that factor into how somebody reacts, you know, the interaction, the 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 relationship they have with the person who shows up, um, how horny they are, you know, what they're looking for. And uh, to take a more intersectional approach, I definitely think that identity such as like if you're a top or a bottom could factor into it. If you're white or if you're racialized, you know, I think there's um, there's other aspects as well that can make a big difference in terms of how people feel safe in those interactions. That's interesting. Yeah, the, the safety aspect of things. And, and that's the reason why a lot of people feel like they can't say no because it's they don't feel mm-hmm. it's safe. And, and especially, um, I think, for minority groups as well, I think that that fear can be can be there longer. Do you think that, um, you know, going, going forward, if we had more say comprehensive consent education and more of a cultural change around consent do you think that that would be minimized or do you think people would still feel feel that sense of i can't say no in this situation i definitely think that like again using covid as an example i think there's there's uh, cultural shifts that are happening where people are uh becoming more comfortable talking about safety and consent and things. So I, and we've seen, you know, like in different, certainly in Canada, there's been changes to um, sex ed curricula where consent is more integrated, sexual violence is more integrated and even the interactions that are facilitated online, like in Quebec, for example, um, they've integrated online interactions into the sexual education curriculum. So I I think that there really is a push. Uh, What's, it's just that these types of things take time to actually see the results of. And so, you know, if here's young people who are in high school or college or university who are learning about now, we might not see the impacts of that for a few years. Um, I, I, I hope that, again, using COVID as, as an example, I hope that this as a particular international phenomenon will, will, be a, will continue to be this catalyst for those types of conversations. Um, and then with the sexual violence lens that has come out since Me Too, I think that these are two big things that are gonna can help move this forward yeah hopefully i know i do I hopefully we will, <laughs> yeah. we will get there yes. no for sure i actually i'm yeah. just thinking there when, when you're saying that about the schools and stuff um and, and that kind of implementing in the curriculum which is fantastic but is there was there a conversation amongst your participants about um the fear of image-based abuse so that those images would be taken and shared somewhere else or put online or anything like that Definitely. Yeah, a few of them. Here again, there were some participants who had like normalized this like, oh, it's not a big deal because, you know, everybody has somebody else's photo. So there's kind of an acceptance that everybody has it. And so long as there's no mass distribution, you know, uh, mass in terms of like everybody's distributing, uh, it seemed like people kind of just let it be. Uh, though individuals have certainly talked about their 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 personal concerns about other people having their images um, and not just the file and being able to share it forward, but even just having it on somebody's phone. Uh, I think what we tend to think is that a non-consensual distribution of an image is when you send it to another person, which is certainly the case. But what we forget is that a non-consensual distribution of an image can also happen when you just show somebody's picture on your phone, right? Even if the file stays in your possession, you don't have the person's consent to show a pic to someone else, 
right? And so while, yes, there's a bit of protection that like you haven't sent the file forward, you're not necessarily respecting the consent of the individual. Yeah, and that, that's a conversation that needs to go out there as well. I think the old version that would have been like printing it out and posting it around. It. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're not at yeah. that stage anymore. And, and who has a printer anyway these days? Uh, <laughs> or a printer yeah. that works anyway. But um, yeah, there's, so there's a lot in that. So I wonder, um, you know, when you go to do all your other research and, and after this, um, if there was a gender dynamic as well between um, mm. gay women and, and you know, and, and trans people as well, if they felt that same way about, the images being shared or um do you have any research on that at the moment not specifically no i mean there's there's been reports online through blog posts and media and different things where people will share their experiences but again that's something that i want to continue to research in the future absolutely so you have a million projects planned what's (laughs) what's your top one what are you dying to get your teeth into yeah so i think this uh there's a, there's a top three, let's put it that way. Okay. <laughs> so definitely this, this idea of COVID and consent, that's one that I'm, I'm particularly interested and uh, like to look into further. And since I did my research before COVID happened, um, I can use that as, as like a, a foundation to compare uh, future research against. So I really want to have this compare and contrast of like, has how people think, it has these thoughts and practices about consent shifted because of COVID. So that's one. The second is, is looking at how, um, how identity really factors into these negotiations and experiences. So looking across race and age and gender, looking at uh, positions and practices, app use, all of these types of things. I, I really want to do more of an exploration of how identity and experience factors into those experiences, the factors into how people think about and practice consent. Um, so that's the second. And the third is, as, as you had mentioned, to look at other forms of sexual violence, online sexual violence in different uh, communities of people. So like what could be not necessarily equivalent of unsolicited dick pics, but like what to what other types of harm do like women who have sex with women and trans and gender diverse people, like what are other ways in which people experience non-consensual or unsafe interactions online and in person. I think that would be a great way to expand the consent conversation, which is always expanding, but always mm-hmm. running behind the reality yes. sometimes. So, oh, yeah, we, we will catch up to it at some point and with great people like yourself doing this work. So that is fantastic. And um, where can people find you if they want to um, catch up with the research that you're doing? Sure. So on Twitter, you can find me at C Dietzel. So C D I E T Z E L. Uh, that's uh, you, you can also find me on my website. So if you just search Christopher Dietzel, I have a couple sites that will pop up, uh, and I have a few publications that are coming up uh, that have just recently been published. So one on cons- uh, on dating apps in the time of COVID, looking at app companies' responses. Uh, I did one about rape culture and looking at how that manifests online, and I have another one on sexual racism, which is due out in the next uh, next year. Or so. Awesome. definitely some other things that are coming up as well wow fantastic and so the other two were out already yeah so the COVID and dating apps one is out and then uh uh, it's called straight up rape culture that's straight up rape rape culture and that one is published as well uh so those are two uh there's another one actually another one about transgender diverse people's experiences called not your unicorn which you can look up um and then there's one that i did actually called willed ambiguity 
that looks at sexual misconduct at universities among queer professors and queer students. Oh, fantastic. Okay, well, I know what yeah. I'm reading for the next hour, so <laughs> fantastic. There you go. <laughs> well, we'll have to have you back on to discuss all the rest of those as well. That sounds sure, fantastic. Sure, I'd be happy to. Oh, yeah. uh, Chris, listen, thanks. And this has been absolutely fantastic. And hopefully it doesn't take another pandemic to get, get deep research going in. But <laughs> it would be nice to see what it was like in normal times. We'll get there. But thank Indeed. you so, so much for your chats today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to all my listeners as well. I hope you really enjoyed that. That was just a fab old chat about the wonderful world of consent, which we are obviously going to chat a lot about on the podcast. If you want to reach out to me, the Instagram and Twitter is West Podcast. And like we said at the start of the show, if you want to support the podcast, it's very much appreciated. And that's patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. And I'll see you next week.